70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hai, jumpa kembali bersama saya Eko Endriwiono dari Nganjuk, Jawa Timur. Di tengah modernisasi Hi, it's a pleasure to say hi to you all. My name is Eko Endri Wiono, and I'm from Eastern Java, Indonesia. Thanks to KBS World Radio, I feel like I can keep up with the fast-changing modern world. KBS World Radio's easily accessible platforms are a blessing to many listeners, including a long-time listener like myself, who enjoys shortwave radio at night. KBS World Radio is very special. Everyone knows about K-pop these days, not just the young people, but the older generations as well. KBS World Radio is the quintessential K-pop channel that brings the whole package. Congratulations on your 70th birthday, and I will look forward to the channel's continued success in the future. semangat. 70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. It's Wednesday, the 18th of October, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Hwang Jang-woo. U.S. President Joe Biden has landed in Israel amid the country's escalating conflict with Hamas in Gaza. However, a meeting with Arab leaders has been called off. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. In the wake of the deadly Hamas attack on Israel, there have been growing calls in South Korea to scrap the 2018 inter-Korean military agreement over fears that has made the nation vulnerable to similar surprise attacks. We explore the idea for our in-depth today. And coming up for Korea Book Club, we delve into a gripping novel about a North Korean spy living in Seoul. Let's begin Korea 24. U.S. President Joe Biden landed in Israel on Wednesday in a diplomatic effort to stop the war with Hamas from escalating into a multilateral conflict. Descending from Air Force One, surrounded by his security team, Biden embraced Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on the tarmac. This visit comes as outrage has swept through the Middle East over a deadly blast of a hospital in Gaza that killed more than 500 people. In a meeting with Netanyahu in Tel Aviv, Biden has suggested that the explosion appears to have been caused by Gazan terror groups and not Israel. Let's hear what he said. I was deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not, not you. But there's a lot of people out there not sure. So we've got, a lot, we've got to overcome a lot of things. 
Biden was initially expected to visit Jordan as well on this visit, but his meetings with Arab leaders were cancelled just as he was leaving Washington. Now Biden's only stop is Tel Aviv, as Israel is preparing for a ground operation into Gaza in retaliation to Hamas's attacks on October 7th. For this and our other major headlines of the day, we have in the studio with us now Deputy Editor-in-Chief of KBS World's English News Service, Kim Ming-Yang. Ming-Yang, hello. Hello, Chang'o. So President Biden arrived in Israel on Wednesday for talks with Prime Minister Netanyahu amid the ongoing war with Hamas, of course. What did Biden have to say? Meeting with Netanyahu, Biden endorsed Israel's version of events over the explosion at Al-Ali Hospital in Gaza, which killed at least 500 Palestinians. He said the blast appears to have been caused by Gazan terror groups and not Israel. This comes as Israel and Hamas have been blaming each other for the explosion. While Hamas has blamed Israeli airstrikes for the attack, the Israel Defense Forces said the explosion was caused by a failed rocket launch by the Palestinian militant group Islamic Jihad. Biden said, quote, I was deeply saddened and outraged by the explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. Based on what I've seen, it appears it was done by the other team and not you. But he added that there are a lot of people out there who are not sure. Let's hear more of what Biden and Netanyahu had to say. Terrorist group Hamas has slaughtered, as been pointed out, over 1,300 people. And is not hyperbole, it's just slaughtered. Slaughtered. And... Uh, including 31 Americans as part of that. And uh, they've taken scores of people hostage, including children. You said, imagine what those children hiding from Hamas were thinking. It's beyond my comprehension to be able to imagine what they're thinking. Beyond my comprehension. I want to thank you for coming here today and for the unequivocal support you have given Israel during these trying times a support that reflects the overwhelming will of the American people. I've seen your support every day in the depth and breadth of cooperation that we have had since the beginning of... Biden also told Netanyahu that he's here for a simple reason. I want the people of Israel and the people of the world to know where the United States stands. Following the hospital blast, Biden's meeting in Jordan with Jordanian King Abdullah, Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, and Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas was called off amid public outrage in Arab countries. Now, while Biden is visiting Israel in another corner of the world, Chinese President Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin met. They met in Beijing on the margins of the third Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation on Wednesday. They were expected to discuss the Israel-Hamas war as well. Can you tell us more? Yes, we don't know yet exactly what they talked about it, but in opening remarks, she called for the role of powerful nations, while Putin said their cooperation is essential amid the current difficult situation. We do know that they were expected to discuss ways to resolve the Israel-Hamas war. That's according to Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov on Tuesday, who noted that the conflict has become a major issue for all world leaders. China and Russia have maintained amicable relations with both Israel and Palestine, but they have taken a noticeably different stance on the war compared to Western nations. Beijing has criticized Israel's retaliatory strike against Hamas for going beyond the scope of self-defense and has called for the resumption of peace negotiations, including the establishment of Palestine as an autonomous state. Moscow has focused on calling for an immediate ceasefire and drafted a UN Security Council resolution last week, but was voted down for lacking a direct reference to Hamas. 
Moving closer to home, the nuclear envoys of South Korea, the United States and Japan held a meeting in Jakarta on Tuesday to discuss North Korea's provision of military equipment for Russia and increasing military cooperation between the two nations. Can you explain? Yes, Seoul's representative Kim Gon attended the meeting at the U.S. Embassy in Jakarta with Tokyo's newly appointed envoy Hiroyuki Namazu and their U.S. counterpart Song Kim. Song Kim reiterated recent warnings by the U.S. that containers carrying weapons moved from North Korea to Russia. He said that North Korea sent over 1,000 containers of military equipment and munitions to Russia in recent weeks, which will significantly increase the human toll by prolonging the war in Ukraine. He expressed concern about what Moscow will give Pyongyang in return, warning that military cooperation between Russia and North Korea could undermine the global non-proliferation regime. The South Korean envoy also denounced military cooperation between North Korea and Russia as a blatant violation of UN Security Council resolutions, warning that there will be no hesitation to make them pay for the violation. He said North Korea will realize that the international community's will to denuclearize the regime is stronger than its nuclear ambitions. Meanwhile, the three countries' air forces will conduct combined air training near the Korean Peninsula on Sunday as part of efforts to strengthen coordination against North Korea's nuclear and missile threats. Let's shift now to a meeting that was held Tuesday, that's yesterday, among doctors' groups in response to the government's plans to increase the number of medical student enrolment quota. Uh, What do they say? The Korean Medical Association warned of a strong fight if the government increases the annual quota of medical school enrollment without consulting them first. After holding an emergency meeting with other associations in Seoul, the KMA, which is the largest medical doctors' group in the nation, said its president, Ipilsu, said the government must keep the promise made in 2020 not to unilaterally change the medical student quota and that the medical groups are readying for a bigger collective action than the one seen in 2020. Though, with medical residents and private practice associations from 16 cities and provinces across the country in attendance, the meeting participants said that expanding the number of medical students cannot be a fundamental solution to address the shortage of essential medical personnel or health care disparities between regions. The government, however, has reiterated its stance that expanding the number of medical students is inevitable. That's where we're going to re- leave it for our news briefing today. In Young, thank you for those updates. Thanks for having me. Seoul's defence minister has revealed that the government is seeking to suspend the 2018 inter-Korean military agreement. Speaking to reporters last week, Defence Minister Shin Won-shik discussed the need to resume frontline surveillance, which he said became difficult due to the pact. This came in the wake of the surprise attack by Hamas militants on Israel, which raised concerns here in South Korea about similar assaults by the North. The National Assembly is currently divided over whether to support uh, this uh, suspension of the agreement. The ruling party is calling for resuming thorough surveillance of the North, while the opposition claims keeping the pact would ensure more security along the border. To discuss this issue, we have two guests joining us today. First, we have here in the studio with us Kim Jung-min, lead correspondent at NK News. Ms. Kim, hello, and thank you for being here. Thank you for, thank you for having me. And we also have Tonim Bum, retired Lieutenant General 
from the South Korean Army. He joins us on the line today. General Chan, hello and thank you for your time. No problem. The 2018 agreement was reached during a brief inter-Korean detente between former President Moon Jae-in and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, of course. It was aimed at easing military tensions by creating buffer zones along the land and maritime borders, as well as no-fly zones in a bid to prevent military clashes. But now its future seems to be up in the air. Ms Kim, can you start us off? Can you briefly introduce the arguments that are being made for and against the agreement, especially here in the political scene? Well, the debate started off actually last year in December when there was a North Korean drone incursion. There were multiple drones that crossed the border and one even reached Seoul, as you remember. And right after that, that was when President Yoon started instructing the officials to review the potential suspension of the comprehensive military agreement. And by far, the new Defense Minister Shin Won-shik's remark on um, aiming at um, as soon as possible, suspending it as soon as possible. It's the strongest by far. Mm. And of course, right now, the political debate between the two parties, it's escalating, especially because there is a parliamentary audit that's going on. And at the Defense Committee, this has been an ongoing issue. The Just to summarize, the People Power Party's point of view, the conservative, their point of view is that this is part of what they call a fake peace initiative, that what they call a fake peace initiative during the Moon administration because it followed the Panmunjom declaration that was made in 2018, April. And then their main point is that North Korea has been breaching this multiple, multiple times, including the drone and also missiles and artilleries across the uh, into the buffer zone. Mm. Um, and that they're also their main point is because of the buffer zone, our drill, uh, the drills on our side of the U.S. Uh, South Korean joint drills, they are being limited, and we shouldn't be the only one that's unilaterally sticking to it. And of course, the Hamas issue. Um, this has been the latest point that they're making that it that the CMA limits the reconnaissance capabilities from the South Korean side. People Power Party, uh, Democratic Party's point of view is that, yes, sure, North Korea breached it multiple times, but this was um, the former Speaker of the National Assembly Park Myung Sok's point of view is that although North Korea breached it, uh, compared to the numbers during the Park Tinghe administration, the Moon administration and the Moon Yun administration number of uh, North Korean breaches of the NLL and the provocations in general they, um, at the border were, were lower. It's their argument. Right. So as you said, this issue has come up again in the wake of the surprise attack uh, by Hamas militants on Israel and parallels here in Korea, were quickly made with the situation on the Korean Peninsula. Although North Korean attacks haven't been, of course, on the same scale or uh, as barbaric as Hamas, there have been deadly surprise attacks over the years, of course, most notably the sinking of the Chunan warship in March 2010 that killed 46 seamen and the shelling of Yampyeong Island in November that year as well, which killed two Marines and two civilians. Uh, with that in mind then, General Chan, you were the head of the South Korean Army's Special Operations Command. Do you think a Hamas-style attack uh, on the South by the North is a real concern? Yes, unfortunately it is. And if you remember, in the 60s and early 70s, North Korea actually did commit uh, infiltrations with uh, soldiers 
Even now, North Korea has the means of uh, underground tunnels, fast boats, hovercraft, low-flying uh, infiltration aircraft. So they're more capable than Hamas with 200,000 reported special forces. So in capability, North Korea is more than capable of a Hamas type of uh, attack. But I don't think even the North Koreans would be as barbaric as what the Hamas did uh, just a week ago. Right. You say North Korea has the ability, but some say it's hard to imagine North Korean troops crossing uh, the DMZ, especially after decades of not having done so and not on the scale that, uh, as you said, we saw in the 60s and 70s? No, that's not correct. Uh, Just because they've been uh, deterred doesn't mean that they don't have the capability. As I explained, they have better capability than Hamas. The only thing that they do not have is the intent. And if the circumstances uh, meet their requirements, uh, North Korea has proven to use their uh, military capability. So there's no question that the threat remains. Right, so the threat remains. Uh, Meanwhile, the 2018 Inter-Korean Military Accord, that was adopted to lower tensions and to prevent clashes like the shelling of Yampyeong Island as well as uh, North Korean special forces attacks. Do you think the accord did achieve that purpose uh, as... uh, the uh, Democratic Party uh, lawmakers have been saying. Did the inter-Korean military pact help prevent especially accidental clashes in the border areas, do you think? Yes, it lowered the possibility of accidental clashes, uh, not only along the border, but more so along the northern limit line. That's where you can see exactly where the boundaries are. And that's where the so-called contested waters are. So it did lower those kind of accidental incidents. But I must remind everybody that the Yenpyeong shelling incident or the Chanan were premeditated uh, military provocations by North Korea. It was well-planned, well-executed. So the North Koreans have the will and capability and the possibility of conducting such uh, atrocities. So we must always be vigilant. Right, so the pact uh, perhaps has helped prevent accidental clashes, but as we keep saying, the threat is still there. Uh, And Ms Kim, what kind of limitations did the pact put on South Korean military activities near the border, if we look at the other side? Uh, What do the JCS and the current defence minister say? Well, before uh, Defense Minister Shin was nominated, I think the main point that the presidential office and the defense ministry and the ruling party, um, the, the, the thing that I have been brought, bringing up was the issue of joint drills mainly, mm. uh, because in the buffer zone, uh, in the ground region near the border, um, there used to be more, um, more grounds for live fire exercises that was available. But especially after last year's a few accidents um, that that showed the limitations of a lack of practice on the soldier side, um, this was sort of merged with the um, general trend that we saw during the Moon administration where the large-scale field training exercises were either downscaled or suspended. Um, And this issue sort of came into the equation with the ruling party and the defense ministry saying that this was one of the main reasons why our soldiers were not ready to fight, basically. 
And the newer point that the defense ministry and the JCS is making right now, especially with the um, defense minister's first visit, was one of the frontline unit, military units. Uh, he said that um, some of the, you me- remember there were guard, um, guard posts, GPs, that were withdrawn after the September 19th um, inter-Korean military agreement. Um, the defense minister is saying that because of the withdrawal of the GP, it was it, it caused a tremendous uh, a damage to the reconnaissance and surveillance capability in general. So it's along the same lines as what the PPP is arguing right now. General Chan, what do you make of those concerns based on your experience? Do you think the military pact limited uh, South Korean military operations uh, near the border in this way, uh, while, as you said, the pact might have helped prevent accidental clashes uh, for military readiness for South Korea, would it be more beneficial to suspend the inter-Korean military pact? No, I fully agree and understand the skepticism and military concerns that the opponents of uh, the Comprehensive Military Agreement, CMA, have. It is reported that North Korea violated the CMA 17 times and the flight limitations constrains our ability to see North Korea. That's true. But it is also true that the CMA has lowered the possibility of accidental clashes along the DMZ and the NLL especially. The real problem is that the Korean military did not take measures to mitigate the above-mentioned limitations. And then coupled with the uh, peace mood that the CMA created, COVID and the sudden demands for the human rights in the military have degraded rock military readiness. This is the real problem. We can always denounce or nullify the CMA. And when the time is right, that, that will happen. But we have to, but we have bigger problems. Hmm. I see. Ms. Kim, we talked about what politicians are saying about the pact, but what do uh, military experts say? What is their opinion on what the pact has done for security and peace on the peninsula? What are experts saying? What are the arguments for calling to keep the pact? Um, I actually wrote a very long analysis on this. I'm talking to experts in D.C. and in Seoul, and the majority, the consensus was that Although North Korea breached it multiple times, it did lead to the, like General Chan says, the managing of risk along the border. And another interesting point was about the optics. If South Korea unilaterally suspends this, many experts say that this will not be a good look internationally um, because right now the way it's shown to the international um, society is that uh, North Korea is the aggressor here not South Korea. And South Korea is the one that is abiding by it because it is an agreement. And another part is um, if the inter-Korean military agreement is suspended um, without clear justification, um, it's unclear if um, it, it will be difficult for the, the agreement, anything similar to this agreement that did limit accidental clashes will be possible in the future. This is geopolitical um, issue right now as well, because um, it's becoming increasingly um, impossible that um, any agreement like that will be possible between North Korea and South Korea. Um, yeah. In the near future, yes. Uh, General Chan, let me pick up on a couple of points that you also said. Uh, you said 
the agreement will come to an end when the time is right. What do you mean by that? And you also mentioned that there are greater problems. Uh, also, what do you mean by that as well? Well, um, North Korea is going... It's in the nature of the North Koreans to conduct another military provocation sooner or later. There will be a situation where the international community, the Korean public, will agree that the CMA is not functioning in its fullest. That is when we will be able to nullify or denounce the CMA in the right kind of manner uh, gaining justification. I think uh, we don't have to do it right now. Secondly, bigger problems is, again, uh, the degradation of training and readiness. Uh, Jung Min mentioned that uh, fire, live fire exercises and uh, nighttime training has been limited, but it's much more severe than the public realizes. And this is an area that must be rectified very, very quickly because uh, the readiness of our forces are being affected. So those are the bigger problems of readiness training. That's what I'm talking about. Right. So ultimately, then, you're saying that uh, whether the government should suspend the pact or not, uh, it's more about waiting for North Korea uh, first and also addressing other issues that should be the priority rather than uh, focusing on the pact itself. Yeah, we should not be the ones that is perceived to be raising tensions on the Korean Peninsula. That's all I'm saying. Well, we'll see if there is a further movement from the administration, also the National Assembly, and we'll also, of course, wait to see whether North Korea responds as well. Uh, we'll wrap it up there. We've been talking to Kim Jong-min from NK News and retired Lieutenant General Chun-in-bum. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 2.43 points, or 0.1%, on Wednesday to close at 2,462.60. The tech-heavy Kosdaq, meanwhile, dropped, shedding 11.49 points, or 1.4%, to close at 808.89. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 4-1 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,349.61. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have with us in the studio now, news editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. Hello there, Jango. Yes, it's good to see you again. So what's the first story that you have for us today? The Seoul Metropolitan Government announced on Wednesday it plans to inject some 51.2 billion won or some $38 million to install smart CCTVs in various autonomous districts to prevent random violent crimes. Yes, this is in response to the recent wave of such crimes that shook the country, right? Can you tell us more? There are areas like parks and hiking trails that raise security concerns. Many feel that lone hikers can be prone to random attacks, and there needs to be more cameras, CCTVs, and parks as well. Meetings were held among local government officials to discuss where the additional cameras should be installed. 
Areas considered to have blind spots will be given priority, of course. The budget of respective districts will also be taken into account. Around 5,500 smart CCTV cameras will be newly installed in some 1,600 locations. And then another 1,200 will replace old cameras in 696 areas. You mentioned that the plan is to install not just ordinary surveillance cameras, but smart ones. Uh, Can you tell us about this technology? What kind of technologies are we talking about? Well, the system involves analysis of footage with AI. The city already uses automatic license plate recognition to track illegal parking and cars on the wanted list and also crack down on vehicles that are barred from some areas like outdated diesel cars. It's also being used to prevent suicide attempts at bridges along the Han River. The AI-based deep learning system can detect real-time situations and predict suicide attempts and alert rescue teams. As such systems can detect behavioral patterns, it can be used to prevent random violent crimes as well by alerting authorities when dangerous signs are detected. The cameras and the system don't replace human decisions, of course. As some experts say, there are still some errors in the analysis. Authorities will continue to hold meetings to review and discuss plans related to this project. And as it is always the case with machines that are catching up with mankind in terms of the evolutionary charts, there will be trial and error in uh, some periods of adjustments to come. Sure, uh, I'm sure there will be. Uh, Meanwhile, there might be some who have concerns about over-surveillance, such as uh, infringing on privacy rights and whatnot. But the current current concerns over attacks means that there are very strong calls to make the streets safer, and so cameras will be seen as a key tool in that. Okay, let's move on to our second story now. What do you have for us? ATMs, they're looking like dinosaurs these days. The number of ATMs in the nation has decreased considerably over the past 10 years. This is mainly due to the decline in cash usage, of course. Yes, we are moving towards a cashless society uh, closer by the minute, but Korea especially is seeing a fast change. Do we have a breakdown of the latest figures? Data from the four major banks in the nation, KB Gungmin, Wuri, Chinan and Hana, released on Wednesday shows there's been a 34% decline in the number of their ATMs in the country over the past 10 years. Uh, from over 24,500 in 2013, all the way down to less than 16,300 this September. With the rise of many other convenient means of making cashless payments, the Bank of Korea reports that cash usage took up less than 15% of all transactions as of 2021. Uh, That's almost half the figure from 2013. Yes, even street vendors now accept uh, cash transfers via smartphone apps. So it's understandable that banks are removing ATMs. But there are concerns, though, that this is adversely impacting some people, right? Right. Senior citizens such as myself. We still go for a cold, hard cash. <laughs> cash is king. We prefer to visit banks and talk to tellers. Many of them withdraw cash from ATMs when their children send them allowances. In some cases, they're dependent on it for a living. Mm. Apps and online services, as convenient as they may be for the younger generations, they're confusing, unfamiliar, and difficult for many in the, many in the twilight years. The silver citizens still have a hard time adjusting. Mm. But it also, it's also hard for banks to have ATMs when there's a declining need for them, especially considering their maintenance cost. The number of banks are declining as well, with the four major institutions each closing some 150 branches between 2018 and July this year. To help with this problem, banks and related authorities are promoting the use of smartphone apps that, use, that help users find the locations of nearby branches and ATMs. Well, it seems a little ironic that the use of smartphone apps are being promoted to help people who cannot use smartphone banking apps 
to find uh, ATMs. But right, a lot of least... senior citizens have those smartphones because it's hard to find button phones like we used to. Right. And they do utilize some of the uh, uh, the cruder, uh, more basic functions like uh, the subway lines maps, and whatnot. I guess. I guess in the map apps. I guess they are at least, uh, the banks are at least aware that there is an issue. But yes, ATMs are on a fast decline in Korea, it seems. Let's continue on to our last story. What else has been trending? The South Korean men's national football team beat Vietnam 6-0 in a friendly on Tuesday with captain Son Heung-min back in the lineup. Yes, it was a complete whitewash and it continued their winning run to three games now. Yeah, the superstars delivered what was expected of them in just five minutes into the match. Kim Min-jae scored from a Yigang in corner kick in there, and Hwang Yi-chan grabbed another one in the 27th minute, ending the first half on a high note for Team Korea. It went from bad to worse in the second half for Vietnam, unfortunately, as one of their players scored an own goal in the 50th minute. Son Yi and Chong Woo-young then took turns lighting up the scoreboard. For Sun, this is his 38th goal donning the Taeguk patch. He looked 100% as he returned to the lineup after missing the previous friendly against Tunisia due to a groin injury. For Yi Gang-in, his performances showed why he must be named in the starting 11 uh, as he managed to score in the back-to-back games. The Paris Saint-Germain star has been hungry for playing time as he was not fully utilized, according to many uh, fans and experts, under Paul Bento's system during the Qatar World Cup. Yes, uh, these recent performances for the team must be a huge load off the head coach's back because, as we've talked before, Team Korea is taking off now, but things didn't seem a bit shaky uh, before this recent win streak. Yeah, deja vu to the days of Gus Hiddink when people used to give him nicknames for losing games big time during his early years, early months and weeks into uh, the uh, management position. Sure. Uh, uh, this is quite the cherry on top of the Sunday, the 6-0 annihilation, clearly raising doubts about head coach Jurgen Klinsmann's leadership. The first victory for his squad came against Saudi Arabia back in September, and then the players displayed their dominance against Tunisia in a nothing win last Friday in Seoul. This makes it 10 goals scored in only two games. A later result is the biggest win under new management, and Klinsman has been experimenting with the roster for some time. And concerns did grow, with many questioning whether the German head coach was the right fit for the post. Yes, but he's silenced his critics for now, at least. Uh, I believe Vietnam's manager, Philippe Troussier, made some comments after the game, right? Yes, he did. The head coach who is celebrated for his success in leading uh, various foreign teams outside of his home country, including African teams, including Ivory Coast, Nigeria, and Burkina Faso, uh, into success, gave high praise to Team Korea, calling the Tegak Warriors a top-class squad with far superior physical and tactical prowess. South Korea will look to keep the win streak going as they face Singapore and China in the second round of World Cup qualifiers in November. And for those who might not be a football aficionado, Vietnam was formerly managed by former South Korean coach Park Hang-seo, who led them to the promised land many times. Of course, as you said, South Korea will be taking on Singapore and China for the World Cup qualifiers. Those will actually be the first real competitive matches under Klinsman so far. Uh, all the games he have led until now have been friendly so that will be the real barometer to gauge the team's progress under his leadership that's all the time we have for today's career trending daniel thank you for the stories and we'll see you next time thank you so much for having me
time now for Korea Book Club, our weekly segment where we dive into the world of Korean literature, usually through notable works available in English translations and beyond. Once again, we have our literary critic Barry Welsh with us in the studio to introduce another book. Barry, hello. It's great to see you. Yes, it's great to see you again. Okay, so what book are you introducing to our listeners today? So this week we're reviewing a novel called Your Republic is Calling You by Kim Yong-ha. It was published in 2006 in Korea and translated into English by Chi Young Kim and published in English in 2010. Uh, and the Korean title is Biche Cheguk. And Kim is, of course, a very prominent uh, South Korean author known for his influential and often uh, innovative contributions to uh, modern Korean literature over the past uh, couple of decades. And his career has been marked by uh, his often unique storytelling style and uh, his explorations of contemporary social issues and themes such as identity, family, uh, modernity and consumerism, as well as, as we'll see in today's novel, the geopolitical tension between North and South Korea. He's also uh, a celebrated essayist and travel writer, a screenplay screenplay writer and even a translator of uh, literature as well. And regular listeners will know that we've reviewed Reviewed uh, many of Kim's uh, books and short stories in the past, including mm. uh, "I Hear Your Voice" and uh, "Black F- uh, Flower," among some others as well. And uh, today's novel, "Your Republic Is Calling You," revolves around Gi Young, uh, a seemingly ordinary middle-aged man living in Seoul with his wife and daughter. However, at the beginning of the novel, his life takes a, a highly dramatic turn uh, when he discovers a mysterious letter that reveals that he's not who he appears to be. It turns out he's a North Korean spy who's been living undercover in South Korea for decades. Uh, And the novel unfolds over the course of one day as he grapples with the uh, rather unexpected instructions he's received. And he'll make some choices that will alter his life forever. Well, it sounds like a very gripping premise indeed. A story of a sleeper North Korean agent living here in Seoul, being called up. Uh, by his country one day. It sounds yeah. uh, really, uh, it sounds great. Can you tell us more? What kind of story is this, though? Is it? Uh, and I understand that there are quite a few uh, underlying themes that the author tries to tackle as well. Right, yes. Yeah. So uh, Kim delves into uh, a lot of different themes in this book. So this is a novel that definitely has a lot uh, going on in it. So first of all, there's this, uh, so identity is a central theme. So the protagonist, Gi Young, he, uh, over the course of this day, he struggles to reconcile his true self whatever that may be, with the identity that he's lived for years. So he's been living as the person he's been pretending to be for so long that he's forgotten who he really is. So now, should he follow his orders from the north and betray his wife and daughter? Or should he not follow these orders and instead uh, betray his uh, superiors and his handlers uh, in the north with uh, potentially deadly consequences? Uh, And then the novel... Uh, explores so you know through this dilemma that Kyung has, the novel is exploring the sort of ever-present tension between North and South Korea, and it offers a a, a somewhat unique perspective on the you know, the very complex relationships between the two. Uh, there have, of course, been incidents, you know, real-life incidents involving uh, you know spies and so on between the North and South, and Kim's definitely drawing on some of those real-life events for this story. Mm. Uh, additionally, another big theme in the book is uh, the theme of family uh, and the sacrifice sacrifices that we sometimes make for the sake of uh, a, of a bigger cause uh, and in this sort of in this regard in his relationship with his family Kiyong is a very uh, well-developed character so this 
his internal conflict and this sort of personal transformation that he goes through is genuinely uh, captivating. Uh, I think most readers will find themselves empathizing with him and with his moral dilemmas. And he has these frequently painful uh, choices that he has to make. Uh, and then as well, there's also two other main characters. So we have Giong's wife and daughter, who each have their own stories. They're just they, their uh, stories are just as significant as Giong's story in the book. Uh, so this sort of provides a sort of multi-faceted uh, depth to the story. And uh, what the novel is really interested in is a comparison between uh, North Korea and South Korea and analysing the the different types of corruption, uh, dissolution and alienation that these uh, three characters experience depending on who they uh, owe their loyalty to. Yes, yeah, so it's quite thought-provoking stuff. There's a, certainly a lot going on. But when we think about spy thrillers, we might th- expect things like uh, espionage, gunfights and daring escapes yeah. and whatnot. But mm-hmm. is it that kind of book? Or is it perhaps uh, a more cerebral type of spy novel? Right, yeah. So it's uh, it, it's definitely not your typical spy thriller. Uh, you know, when I was sort of researching for, for this review today, you'll, you'll there, there's lots of reviews online uh, where people are complaining that they were expecting a sort of more traditional spy thriller with, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, gadgets and espionage and so on. But <laughs> that, this definitely isn't that novel. Uh, this is more of a, you know, a typical Kim Young-ha sort of story, especially from this period when he was writing. It's more of a modernist and uh, even you know postmodernist take on the spy genre. So he's definitely setting out to subvert those expectations that you mm. might have of a spy story. That espionage element, it really is just there as a metaphor for what Kim sees as the hidden dualities that uh, just regular people living in society have. So all of the characters in this book, or at least the three main characters, they're all living double or secret lives in some way. Uh, and so Kim's exploring uh, sort of how we change in our life and how how these changes can catch us off guard. So Gi Yong, he's grown comfortable in his you know his fake South Korean uh, facade, uh, but he now has this big life altering decision. So you know his family don't know who he really is. His wife as well, she's sort of become bored with their their you know dull middle class existence, and she has her own moral uh, quandary to deal with. And at the same time, their daughter Hyunmi, uh, you know she's sort of dealing with what may seem like typical teenage problems but are obviously very significant to her. And so all three of these stories which sort of cross paths in unusual ways over the course of the 24 hours, they sort of highlight this profound impact of our choices, whether they're big or small. Uh, and the story is much more interested into delving into the nuances of life and the unforeseen consequences of our decisions uh, than it is in sort of depicting uh, you know, shootouts or chases, although those elements are present at times too. Right, so don't go in expecting uh, James Bond yeah, right, or yeah. Jason Bourne or anything <laughs> uh-huh. like that. Uh, it sounds almost more like a domestic trauma at times yeah, then, right, mm-hmm. uh, but still mm-hmm. gripping nonetheless with uh, layers of uh, depth and complexity. So then how best should we approach this work? How, who do you think would most enjoy uh, your Republic is Calling NY? Right, yes. Yeah, so this is a novel that offers, uh, like you said, a lot of depth and complexity. It's certainly a captivating read for a particular uh, type of audience. So it doesn't, well, it's not catering to that traditional spy stuff, but it does have a lot to offer to readers who appreciate you know, character-driven stories, you know, thoughtful exploration of social issues, and even uh, you know, intimate uh, look at the intricacies of... Uh, family uh, dynamics and, and human relationships. 
And, you know, I think it would also appeal to readers with an interest in you know modern Korean literature in general or depictions of Korea in the early 2000s, right? So it was published 2006 and it's you know very clearly set in the period just before that. It's very interesting to see how Kim depicts Korea at this time. Uh, and you know, Kim's approach to that spy angle, using it as the sort of metaphor, is also a sort of you know intellectually appealing uh, a dimension to the to the story as well. And if you're just a fan of Kim Young Ha's work in general, uh, the ones that this book reminded me of were "I Hear Your Voice," uh, "Photoshop Murder," and "I Have the Right to Destroy Myself." Uh, and all of, all of those are stories dealing with urban alienation, identity, and sort of twisting aspects of genre story- storytelling. Uh, so if you've read those, definitely check this one out. This is you know it's a book that invites readers to uh, explore the intricate nature of human existence. It's reflective and contemplative, and I think it will linger in the mind with many readers long after they finish reading. Okay, so that was Your Republic is Calling You by Kim Young-ha and that was our pick for this week's Korea Book Club. Barry, thank you for that review. Have a great week and we'll see you next time. Okay, take care. Kim of the hip-hop group Ajima EXP. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. We've come to Morning Edition Preview now, our closing segments where we take a look at some interesting features, reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers. And for that we have with us our staff editor Richard Larkin. Richard, hello, it's good to see you. Hello, Jana. Okay, so what's the first story that you have for us? Well, I have some K-pop news. So the 2023 MTV Europe Music Awards, also known as the EMAs, revealed details about the upcoming show that will be held in Paris on November 5th. And I am sure fans of the K-pop group BTS were excited to see one name in particular, Jungkook. Mm-hmm. It was revealed that he is up for three awards and he will be one of the acts that will perform on the night. That's what Che Ji-won's article in the K-pop section of the Korea Herald is about. Yes, the singer, uh, he's had quite the successful year with his uh, solo tracks, to say the least. Yes, yes. Uh, what categories has he been nominated for? So, best song, best K-pop and biggest fans. Now, I have looked at the other nominees and I think I might have to stay off social media this the week of the awards show. <laughs> there is strong competition and I think it might be a huge battle between fandoms. So that's because he's up against Taylor Swift. Blackpink, Billie Eilish, Nicki Minaj, Olivia Rodrigo and more. They are all known for having dedicated fans. Yes, <laughs> indeed, especially Taylor Swift, yes. who is uh, making both entertainment and sports news currently <laughs> in the US due to her dating life, of yes. course. But anyway, uh, going back to Jungkook, you mentioned he'll perform at the show as well. He will. He was named as one of the 10 acts that will take the stage. It doesn't say what he will perform, though, whether it will be Seven or another song from his first solo album, Golden. That will be released just two days before the EMAs. Okay, perfect timing then. So something to look forward to for BTS and K-pop fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move on. What's the next article that you found in tomorrow's papers? It's Kwak Yun-soo's article in the culture section of the Korea Times. So the hugely popular Korean actor Song Kang-ho, who was in Parasite and won the Best Actor Award at the 75th Cannes Film Festival for his performance in Broker, held a masterclass at Hong Kong Baptist University over the weekend. There he gave some interesting insight into his career, what he is like on set, and the booming success of Korean cultural content. 
Wow, that sounds like a great experience for the participants. I'm sure mm. as a veteran and celebrated actor, he would have a lot of uh, tips for up-and-coming actors looking right. to make it in the industry. Mm. What did he have to say about becoming such a huge star? Well, he gave a unique answer, one which confused me at first, but the more I think about it, the more it makes sense. Mm. He said he was able to work with some of Korea's biggest filmmakers like Pa Chang-wook and Bong Joon-ho because he wasn't handsome enough. This means he is able to play a variety of roles and audiences are able to relate to him and believe his role more. Thinking back to some Korean dramas and movies I have seen in the past few years, there were times when the actor is meant to be poor and have nothing, but they looked so perfect. So the immersion was not quite there. So I guess it makes sense, actually. There was a film we reviewed actually for Movie Spotlight last week where Song Joong-gi is meant to be a tough, street thug mm. type of gangster in a gritty <laughs> drama. I saw the trailer. I mean, I'm sorry, he's just too good looking <laughs> to play that role. Right. I haven't seen the film. Maybe he's great in it, but mm. I don't know. Uh, just the trailer, I was like, he's just too good looking. <laughs> but yes, uh, Song Gang-ho, I guess I know what he's talking about, but uh, he's also a fantastically talented actor as well. Sure. So I'm sure that helped. Uh, what else did he say? What did he have to say about Korea's success when it comes to its content? Well, I actually liked his answer for this. So he said, Koreans don't settle. They always strive to be better. And the environment helped produce huge talent. He added that it wasn't an overnight thing, that it took time to reach the level it is at right now. But he also thinks that this is Korea's new wave of movies. For those who don't know, this is when film movements emerge in other countries and solidify their places in the history of cinema. For example, France had a huge new wave in the late 1950s, and Hong Kong had hugely popular movies in the 80s and 90s. Mm. I remember studying about them in uh, film class in university. Mm. But yeah, Song did mention that he grew up watching Hong Kong movies, and they helped spark his fascination with cinema. Yeah, but there are more comments made by the actor. So if you're interested in reading them, check out tomorrow's article. OK, that's where we wrap it up for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that wraps up our show as well. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio.